0: Welcome to the Amor Mundi podcast from the Hannah Arendt Center for Politics and Humanities at Bard College. Amor Mundi means love of the world. We are here to explore ways of thinking together and loving the world in the spirit of Hannah Arendt. During the social isolation of the coronavirus, the Amor Mundi podcast will speak with writers, scholars, and activists in a series called Thinking the Plague. This is episode six, Thinking in Dark Times. It features the Arendt Center's founder and director, Roger Berkowitz and Samantha Hill, assistant director of the Hannah Arendt Center in a wide ranging conversation about thinking during the time of the plague.
1: Thank you for agreeing to make this audiovisual record of this moment and to talk a little bit about Hannah Arendt and thinking. So, I'm asking everyone the same question to begin, which is one of the questions that Hannah Arendt posits in The Life of the Mind, which is where are you when you think? So, where are you when you think? Where are you right now? And how is this moment affecting your ability to think?
2: I think most of all when I'm reading. I find that if I want to get myself thinking about something, I will go and read something. And that's the way I write as well. I mean, most of what I've written in my life is in some way a reaction to a book. Or if I'm interested in a question, I'll go find a book that I think. Frames that question or reframes it, and read that book and react to the question through that book. And so often when I'm thinking I'm in a book, I will say that in most for most of my life when I'm reading I'm usually in a cafe. I'm a cafe person. I know there are people who need quiet. There's library people. There's desk people. I'm a cafe person. i always you know I went to grad school in Berkeley. I think that had a lot to do with it. <laughs> but I just always go to cafes and read and there's no doubt that when i can't go to a cafe like right now uh it's harder for me i i have a a little chair near the window here that i've been reading it mm-hmm. but um i don't find that as productive as, as sitting in a cafe i for some reason the the little bit of noise you know it has to be a very particular kind of cafe it can't be too many people talking but there can't be pure silence You know, I've always had my cafes where there's always enough people talking that you drown it out, but not too many people talking. But I also like to move around. I like to go from cafe to cafe. I'll sometimes be at two or three cafes a day reading, and I have a notebook and I write. And especially today, one place I know I can't be to think is on the internet. And um, the weirdest thing about this plague experience is that on the one hand, unlike all the other plagues prior to this, where people could retreat to books and really be alone, I find that most people I know are retreating to the internet. Mm -hmm. And um, I am too. And I'm finding that really quite troublesome. So in fact, I've set up a reading nook on this chair over there near the window that I don't ever bring my computer to. Uh-huh. and um, you know, trying to get away from the internet. That's one of the things I like about cafes. I go to cafes. I have a few cafes I won't tell anyone about that are still in New York that don't have internet. On a list. <laughs> yeah, no, um, and I, I really like, I really value those cafes that don't have internet yeah. and I can go and read and, and think there. I think thinking is, you know, as you, you well know, hanarensis is a dialogue with yourself. But to, when I read, it's like a three-way dialogue. It's between me, the book, and myself. And, mm-hmm. um, and so to me, I can be anywhere if I can read, which brings up a question, and I, I don't know how you feel about this. I mean, I have in the last, I think it's more like five years, struggled to read more than I ever have in my life oh. because of the internet, because of the phone, because of all the interruptions. It's just harder and harder to find the time, uninterrupted time to read. I don't know if you found that at all or not.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I have found that. And I've found myself developing coping mechanisms for the distraction of the internet and social media. So I have never been very good friends with sleep. Five hours is about all I can manage a night. So I tend to be a night owl and an early riser. And the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning, aside from make coffee, is uh, set a timer on my phone for an hour and read for pleasure. Mm. just read with my notebook and have that quiet space in the day to center myself before looking at Twitter, Facebook, or email. And that's helped me. I actually, I find myself setting little timers for 20 minutes or 30 minutes to read because it's hard. It's hard to carve out space when you're juggling so many different things. So I'm wondering about this three-way dialogue between you and the book and you and yourself and the space of the cafe versus the space of your home office that you've set up. What is it about the appearance in public, do you think, the presence of others, the sound that alters the experience of reading and thinking for you?
2: You know, I have thought about that actually, and I'm not sure I have a full answer. One thing I like about cafes is there's other people there, and you sort of feel judged if you're just wasting time. That's um, true. <laughs> and, and so, you know, I sort of feel like it's having the superego sitting on my shoulder looking over me. Yeah. Um, the appearance is important, the being outside is important. I get you're right. But the cafes that I've worked best in over time are just ones where, again, it was crowded, but People were working, and there was enough noise that you could drown everything out and um, I don't bring a computer. Mm. I think that's a big part of it. You don't have distractions. you know the big question now is whether I bring my phone i I did get an Apple watch in order to not bring my phone, and that's sort of what I do sometimes I'll go to a cafe and if I get a text or something, I can look and I don't have to answer it.
3: yeah
2: um, that's the actual reason I got an apple watch was so that I could ditch the phone at certain places and it's effective when I do it. I just don't do it enough. There's obviously an appearance about it. I like the feeling of being in a cafe with a book, a pen, and a notebook.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And that sense, in a sense, inspires me to read. And when I'm at a cafe, I'm there. I don't have, I can't get up and go to the cabinet or get this or that. So yeah, I, I think that the public is important. Not so much in that I'm appearing i mean i don't I'm not putting on a performance, but I think it it helps focus me and it helps I think I feel like i'm in I'm someone reading in a cafe, and that's obviously something that means something to me, i guess
1: when you're talking about it, I hear almost a physicality, an embodiment in the activity of reading itself, the experience of holding a book, of using a pen, of paper, of not having the digital distraction, of having the energetic exchange happening physically between you and the space that you're occupying in a way that that might enliven thinking in a specific way that we might not otherwise have access to. But it strikes me almost as you know, in my image of Arendt lying on her couch with a cigarette. Thank you, Barbara Saccoa, you know. Yeah, that's
2: that's from a movie. That's not from reality. (laughs) I know. I
1: know. I know. I know. But I think a lot of people have that image in their head because of that, of Arendt as somebody who performed thinking, who they could see thinking when she spoke. And the way that she talks about thinking is something that happens in a space of solitude. And so... For her, that space of solitude in part rests upon the necessity of the private realm and the ability to retreat from public space.
2: Just to say, I think a cafe is a very private space. I I mean, I guess that's what I was trying to say with the cafe, I mean, when I'm in a cafe, there may be other people around, but I feel in my own world, I mean, it is a feeling where I feel like I can get lost. Now I will say, one of the things I do like about a cafe is that every once in a while, someone will come and interrupt you. Um, <laughs> and sometimes they're a good friend and that's a really great experience to just be interrupted by a good friend. I really love that. And then sometimes it's just some nosy person saying, oh, you're reading Nietzsche or you're reading Hannah Arendt. I love, I studied them in college or something like that. Yeah. and I just want to shoot the person.
3: <laughs> but, um,
2: they all think, oh, I want to talk about Hannah Arendt or whatever. and. Yeah. Um. But I do like the fact that there's this chance element of it. Yeah. But really, I actually do feel more in solitude in a cafe than I do in my desk at home. And maybe it's because I sort of have to put up a barrier. Mm-hmm. And as a result, I really am alone with myself and the book in a cafe. Mm-hmm. Um. I don't know, maybe that doesn't make sense, but I I actually have a more you know, you asked the question, where do where am I when I think? And I have so many distinct memories mm-hmm. of different cafes mm-hmm. where I had particular ideas. Mm-hmm. I can tell you where I had ideas about Rosantomont and Revenge that were that were very important to me for a long time. It was at Cafe Rouse in Amherst. And
1: I know
2: that cafe. Yeah. And, and there are certain cafes where I have had certain ideas.
1: Yeah.
2: And with certain books in front of me. And um, I feel much more like that's where I'm alive intellectually and mentally thinking than in this messy room.
3: Um,
2: and, and my room is always messy. There's just nothing I can do about it. That's something else I really appreciate about a cafe. You, you bring one book. one and one notebook and you put them on the table and there's nothing else and you feel like clean and you feel ordered uh, which I never feel yeah I never feel that at home
1: you're not constantly there might be other distractions that can possibly interrupt you but you're not constantly being distracted by your home life and all the other things that you could be attending two in your space. It resonates deeply with me when I was in graduate school, um, taking my comprehensive exams, I actually prepared for them in a cafe in Washington, DC. And then I flew back to Amherst to take the exam, which was a one week take home written and then an oral. And when I sat down to start to write it in Amherst, I realized because I had prepared for it, in this cafe in DC that there was no way I was going to be able to write it in Amherst. So I got on a plane that night. I flew back to DC and wrote it in my cafe and then flew back to the Fend.
2: That's amazing. That's a great story.
1: It, it's um, insane in a certain way, but I think we have those spatial memories.
2: Yeah. No, I mean, my, my first book that I wrote, The Gift of Science, while I largely wrote much of it in Berkeley, I rewrote it and finished it in three years at a cafe in New York, Cafe Doma, which no longer exists. I mean, they changed it. It's still there somewhere, but it's yeah. not what it was. I mean, I remember when I, when the book first came out and I went in and I gave them a copy of it and said, look, this book was written here. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, those are great memories. And so I think one of the things that's really frustrating to me about this moment is, is by being stuck at home, I actually don't feel so cut off from people because I've been having more phone conversations and more, and more internet conversations than I probably ever had in months I mean, or years, decades. I've actually had a great week and a half or two weeks of talking to friends and catching up and doing things. But I mean, I've been making time, trying to make time, but uh, feeling a little bit like I need to get out of the house. Yeah. And that's That's not gonna happen here in New York City for a little while, so.
1: No, no. As we're talking and I'm thinking about Space and I'm thinking about writing and conversation and the work that you do and the work that we do at the Hannah Arendt Center. I'm thinking about how much of the work we do relies upon the creation of space and creating space for conversations. Conversations ideally in person with students on campus, at the Hannah Arendt Center, at the house, at the Mary McCarthy House, in dorm rooms, or Um, in lecture halls and creating spaces where people can physically come together and think together and think about oftentimes things that aren't easy to think about. And I'm just wondering if you could talk, you know, maybe for people who aren't, Super familiar with the Hana Orient Center about how that conception of running a Hana Orient Center came into existence and how you've thought about that work of creating space for conversation over the years and how you're thinking about it now in this moment of pandemic and corona time.
2: No, yeah, thank you. Um, we have a mission statement that I can never remember. Um, <laughs> but I do well, remember. Yeah, but, but you forgot the part that comes before it. At least I assume it's still in it because it was when I started it. To nurture a space, yes. a space that nurtures the bold and provocative thinking in the spirit of Hannah Arendt. That was very much how I figured it. And um, I mean, I guess looking back on it now, you could have thought, oh, he's an Arendtian. So he's talking about space. I wasn't thinking that way. Gary's giving me way too much credit.
1: I've never Um, actually heard it that way. You said that just now. It seems totally common sense to think about it that way, but I've never heard it that way. And
2: it's never how I meant it. I meant it simply as literally a space to come together and talk, which uh, I've spent many years in different contexts. I mean, when I was an undergrad, I started a a magazine called Prism with the idea was that you'd have one topic and everyone would write on that topic from different perspectives. And mm-hmm. and and in high school I started a club in which we would have a week long, three week long series a year. We'd bring in speakers on one topic from different perspectives. You know, if you want to look back and say I'm incredibly boring, but I've had a consistency to my ideas, which is that I've for a long time believed in the importance of bringing people who disagree together. And who think together. There's many things about Hannah Arendt that I love, a few that I maybe don't. But we're going to come back to that. Nah, well, we'll <laughs> see. Um, there's probably nothing I love about her more than her fearlessness. And, you know, this idea that she has that, you know, I quote a lot. I think some people quote a lot. But I think most people, most people just, if they actually were put to it, don't agree with,
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, which is that there is no, truth in politics and that it's really all opinion and that the whole premise of objectivity is something that's foreign to political and social life. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I was rereading her, I forget what it's called, moral considerations essay, uh, the lecture courses today, and she's like, and I'm going to say something which I think you're all going to disagree with, which is that all of our opinions are subjective. There are no objective truths. Yeah. And I was like, man, that is just so right about her and it she's absolutely right that 99% of even the people who think they agree with it don't agree with it. They they believe in expert opinions, you know, and and we've seen this with this whole coronavirus Michigas, where you see people saying we have to listen to the experts and then you have someone like Trump saying well, we can't let the experts run everything. And if you say anything like, well, actually, Arendt sort of agrees with him on that, you're going to get nailed and say, oh, you're just trolling for Trump. I'm like, no. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, Trump is wrong, but he's wrong not because he doesn't listen to experts.
1: Well, she draws, she draws that distinction, I think, between experts and the human condition or th- that's what you're talking about, thinking and moral consideration when she's talking about professional thinkers, And for her, that doesn't mean that there isn't scientific fact or mathematical fact or historical facts. Her her problem
2: is not with experts. It's with experts who think that their expertise makes them better judges of things. Right. Right. So I have no problem with an expert who tells me, here's a model that shows that 100,000 to 200,000 people will die if we don't do this. Now, there's a couple things I should say. One is there are other experts who think that that's a, that model's wrong and, and that it's going to be lower or higher. Mm-hmm. Um, but none of that tells me what I should do. And when an expert says, because of that, here's what we should do. We should shelter in place. We should do this. As far as I'm concerned, he's no longer an expert or she's no longer an expert. Yeah. Now, she may be an expert in saying, if we do this, this will happen. If we do that, that'll happen. But at that point, it gets a lot more complicated, and I think the experts know a lot less. But we can try. In any case, the RN Center, it's a weird way back to the question, you know, is an attempt to create a space where people who are experts and people who are not, where students and faculty, where we have a lot of members who are, you know, just lay people. And I don't mean just lay people, I mean, but lay people. We have writers, we have artists, we've always, one of the things we've always done is brought writers and artists and poets who've helped bring a lot of poets in. And part of the premise of the center, which I think is very Arendtian, although I think when I started it, I didn't know it was so Arendtian, huh. is, is that the pursuit of thinking about the world has to include not only people who disagree politically, but people from very different backgrounds. Right um, from literature, from, from, from philosophy, from business. I mean, you know, at most of our conferences, we have business people speaking. At most of our conferences, we have artists speaking. And we, you know, obviously, we have some academics. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I get a lot of critique from other academics saying there's not enough academics at your conferences. And I'm like, well, actually, there's usually a fair bit, but they're from different programs. They're from different fields, from different backgrounds. But they're not only academics. And I think most academics are only used to talking to other academics. Yeah, And so one of the things I like about what we've done is to bring in a wider range of, of perspectives and people.
1: Yeah, I feel like I have two things. One of the things that I feel like you have helped me become much more attuned to in speaking is learning how to talk. Uh, to people who aren't academics about academic ideas, which is something that I've always been really committed to politically since I was in college and doing kind of public work. But, you know, when you're immersed in an academic institution environment, you really get used to just having conversations that are really laden with jargon. And I think even with Hannah Arendt's work, sometimes it's easy to fall into those kinds of conversations about thinking or judgment that aren't as accessible to people yeah. which is not the kind of work she was she was dedicated to
2: no I mean you're absolutely right I mean this has been a theme of mine for my whole life uh, first of all when I decided to go to graduate school I, I remember vividly I, I called my mother up and I said I'm you know gonna apply for some of these PhD programs
3: yeah.
2: and she went crazy she was like no <laughs> and I was like why not? And she's like, because you're gonna become one of those people no one understands. <laughs> and
1: that's wonderful. And,
2: and so she made a deal with me that every paper I wrote in grad school I had to send to my mother. Yeah. And if she couldn't understand it, I had to rewrite it. <laughs> and you know, it was one of those crazy things. Of course I didn't do every paper, but I did it a lot. And it really forced me to to write and speak in a way that was um comprehensible. And I you know I was not very good at it at the beginning because I think very few people at the beginning can be because you get caught up in jargon, you get excited about it. Yeah. I mean I did go to an interdisciplinary program and that had the advantage of the fact that the faculty were all from different disciplines and so you couldn't get caught up in just one jargon. And then I had a particular professor Philippe Nonet, who just you know he taught law. We, I was a, I did a PhD in law. And he insisted that in le- in our classes, we not be allowed to use any legal terms. Mm-hmm. so if you wanted to say the defendant, you had to actually say the person who is being accused or charged, you had to put it in a sentence right and it was like it was amazing how hard it was to do and and the result was um, that you actually force yourself to speak English rather than legalese or jargon and I still do that when I teach. With my students, like for just to give an example, when I teach Hanaren, I refuse to let students use the word natality. Right. Uh, you you know this. This is a bugaboo of mine. I find when I first started reading Hanaren, it was natality this and natality that, oh, yeah. and I I just lost it. I thought this was the stupidest stuff in the world. I mean, n- natality <laughs> the is a word. The word
1: natality she, craze in the early aughts. Among yeah. The oh. I mean,
2: she, she probably, I don't, I've never done the work, but I imagine she uses the word natality in her writing 15 to 20 times. I mean, I, maybe I'm wrong, maybe it's a slightly more, but it's not that much. And it just became this thing where everyone was writing about natality. And um, I have made a real effort to almost never use the word natality in anything I've ever written about Han RN. And that's just, these are little things, but they're, they're things that I take very seriously. And as you know, we have a lot of student programs at the Han Arendt Center. And I want students to feel empowered to speak.
3: Mm -hmm. And
2: I think there's two ways you can empower people to speak these days. One is teach them a jargon and let them feel special and elite. And the other is to just let them speak in everyday language and make them speak clearly. And I I certainly prefer the latter.
1: Yeah, and it strikes me also, you know, I feel like reading Hannah Arendt's work teaches that kind of thinking, which makes you engage with the language you're using when you talk about something. I mean, obviously, this is part of her critique of Eichmann and the use of jargon and cliches and stock phrases. But I feel like we're living in a political moment right now where it's very easy to rely upon certain words to do a lot of heavy lifting and conversation for us that prevent us from actually explaining what it is that we're thinking, feeling, experiencing ourselves um, holding up that particular experience. I'm wondering about this and the critique of experts and one of the questions I wanted to ask you that's been coming up um, in thinking with Hannah Arendt about this moment is her critique of professional philosophers. She talks about how the language of professional thinkers, term, and philosophers turns us away from what's happening in front of us. And in a lot of my personal conversations with people for the past few weeks, I've been really surprised by how many people are unwilling to kind of see what's happening right now. Like there's a general resistance to change behavior, to take personal responsibility for the collective good. And I was wondering if you were you know, if that's something you've experienced, or if you've been thinking about that, or what it is about our particular moment right now that's preventing people from seeing the severity of this pandemic. Well, I, I think
2: you and I haven't talked so much recently about what I've been doing, but what yeah. I've been writing about for the last five months is her thinking about experts. The speech I gave in Bremen for the Hannah Arendt Prize was about that, and and so this is really what I'm. I think right now is is the number one issue in our world. And, and, it, and it's on many levels. So as, as you know, because I've written about it, the, the Italian philosopher, Giorgio Agamben, yes. uh, in mid late February, wrote a piece, an essay in which he said, you know, this, this is just the flu. And it's being used by governments to, to justify disciplinary and authoritarian actions. And we should reject this and things of that sort. He was clearly wrong. And I think what I said in the first thing I wrote about it, because I've written a couple things on it, is he was wrong because he has a theory. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a theory about bare life and the way things are reduced to life, and that we shouldn't only care about life, we should also care about the meaning of the world, which by the way, Arendt agrees with him on and I agree with him on. But he basically took his theory and said that out of biopolitics, the governments are going to use things like the flu to take more control. And applied it without ever looking at the facts, and without ever looking at what was actually going on. And
3: yeah.
2: and this is the danger of all professional thinkers. In a sense, the definition of a professional thinker and an expert for R. N. Both, and though they're different, but what they both share is uh, an unwillingness to see reality. Right. Um, she thinks that experts get caught up in their ability to control things and. They have an idea of, you know, we can win this war or we can do this. And whenever facts don't fit, they reinterpret the facts. She thought Marxists did the same thing, right? You know, we have a theory of alienation, a theory of surplus labor, and no matter what happens, it always works because we can massage the the facts to fit the theory. Right. And, And so her view, and she says the same thing in Eichmann about the people who read her book wrong. She says they were intellectuals. The intellectuals were the most dangerous readers of her book because they all read her book looking to prove their theory. And so, you know, one of the things that's really deep in Arendt is uh, just like she's also very skeptical of objectivity. She's very skeptical of anyone who is theoretical. This is one of the reasons, you know, I don't like calling her political theorist. I mean, even though she once said I'm a political theorist, I don't think she was. I think she was a political thinker the phrase
1: I always use. Okay. I um, I think that's
2: right. Yeah, I do too. And and she's very much worried about experts getting caught up in their view of the world and not seeing reality. And so I'll just say that we see this now as I think the most important issue of our time. The Mm -hmm. reason Donald Trump is president Mm -hmm. is not economic. It's because an intellectual elite largely college educated, vast, primarily college educated, on the left and center and even partly on the right for the last 60 years has basically taken power in the Western world. I mean, that can, maybe longer than that, but in, the, in a certain part of the world and imposed its view of the world and they think it's the only view. Now, I happen to share that view. I'm one of them. Uh, and I'm yeah. largely, lar- you is, you know, we can, we can talk about it in a lot of different ways, but there's a certain, I think certain elements of it. One is cosmopolitan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, am I'm, I'm someone who travels around the world giving lectures and now runs a global humanity center through the, through the, uh, open society university network, which is starting.
3: Mm-hmm. I'm a
2: very cosmopolitan person. I, I've studied and lived in four or five different countries and and I, I share that love of internationalism, and to some degree, a skepticism of parochialism and, and nationalism. And yet, that's one view. And it's not the view of most people in the world. Right. And yet, it's become the dominant view of even people on the right who are in leadership around the world. I mean, not the far right that's happened as a rebellion against that. But before five or 10 years ago, left and right shared that view another place, uh, we can see that is religion. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's a general skepticism amongst, uh, these, what, you know, again, what you call us elites about religion, a clear uh, priority for multiculturalism or diversity. Mm -hmm. Um, and I guess another way to put it, another, another aspect of it would be a belief that the problems of the world can largely be solved. Uh, Progressivism. I mean, even conservative intellectuals generally have embraced the idea that government can solve our problems. Um, if there's a problem, we can solve it. You know, I'm sure there's other there's other aspects to it of it as well. But I think these are some core fundamental values of my class, your class. As I speak for you and I of elites, and this basic idea that the government can solve the problems and make things better. I don't think is shared by a majority of people in the world. You know, they they look at the schools and the schools don't seem to get better and they look at healthcare and it doesn't seem to get better. And they look at immigration and they see people taking in their view, taking their jobs. And they look at, you know, a loss of feeling American and they say, well, why shouldn't we feel American or English or, or whatever it is, or Russian or Indian or Israeli. And so I think, uh, there is a prejudice that experts have that their view is objective in some way and therefore better. Right. And um, and I think that's an incredibly dangerous prejudice and it prevents them from seeing other views, other ways of seeing the world. And I think that we are now witnessing a rebellion against experts and elites around the world. I think that's, in my mind, that's the sort of ground trait of what unites all the different rising populist leaders around the world is a distrust and a disdain for experts who have distrusted and disdained the rest of the people for the last 50 or 60 years. And, um, you know, what what I think is so interesting about this moment around the coronavirus is you're seeing, like, the populist in chief having to negotiate dealing with experts on on a podium every day for two hours. And you see him, on the one hand, struggling against them and trying to say, you know, I'm not gonna listen to the experts and they're just experts. And the other hand, clearly realizing that in some cases, the experts know something and he's gotta listen to them.
1: One of the things that I've been really struck by watching these briefings, which I'm honestly quite torn about watching, but in a certain way, feel a civic responsibility, to watch is the extent to which he is censoring reporters who are asking questions and who are reading his own statements back to him and there seems to be in his in his engagement habits and in Trump's speech habits this desire for simplifying the narrative and i think the desire for the overly simplified narrative is part of the disdain for expertise, have you have you tied those two together? I know it's something Arendt, um talks about in Origins.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I mean, the the you know, as you you and I know this well, we've talked a lot about it. The premise of ideological thinking is not that the lies are going to convince anybody. Right. It's that they express a kind of solidarity. So when Trump says something like. This is a hoax. Yeah. In his view, he's not saying the coronavirus is a hoax. Maybe he meant it then. I don't know. I mean, you know, he but what he's saying is, look, don't trust these Democrats, they're out to get me. Right. And his people understand that. And the problem is that in a situation like we're in now, even though most of his people understand that, some don't. And some actually take him seriously and then start having coronavirus parties. And saying, you yeah. know, see, it's all a hoax. Therefore, we can just go and have a party or go to the beach in Fort Lauderdale, and yeah. lather suntan lotion on each other's backs. And aren't we cool? I mean, I've, I had a hard time dealing with this because I, on the one hand, as I said, I'm a cosmopolitan elite. I, I am as appalled by Trump's lies as everybody else. And yet, I'm also very much aware that for him and many of his followers, he's seen as a truth teller. And that those two things aren't necessarily at odds. Yeah. He's he's telling a truth against our worldview. And a lot of us, by the way, make factual mistakes all the time in what we say. We just don't call each other on it because we largely agree with each other. Yeah. What we're seeing right now is someone get up and make a lot of factual mistakes, someone who doesn't really care and speak very carefully. I don't know if he's actually dyslexic or, or not, but I don't think he reads. I don't think he's someone who, you know, has a very good grasp on minutiae at all yeah. uh, And or, or reality, but he's telling a particular truth and a lot of people find the truth he's telling a meaningful counterweight to the truth that people like me and journalists and you and others have been telling for many years. So I get that and, um, And I think that one of the reasons this particular crisis is hard for him is that he actually has to listen to the experts. What's interesting is that he has. I mean, he's almost, at least in the last three weeks, he's almost never gone against what the experts have told him. He said things against what the experts have told him, He's, but he he, he hasn't gone against it.
1: I mean, but he also could be doing more.
2: I was going to say, he hasn't shown leadership. No, I mean there's a difference between Andrew Cuomo and, and Donald Trump. Yes. I mean Andrew Cuomo gets up there and tells you what's going on. Yes.
3: And you feel
2: and, and you feel led and you feel
3: yes and
2: you feel confident. And yet what's amazing to me is that 60% of the country thinks that Trump is doing a good job yes. on this. And what that tells me is that 60% of the country listen to Trump and feel confident and led. And that's the, the easy answer is, oh my God, I tremble when I think that these are my countrymen.
1: But is there a difference between feeling led and feeling represented, feeling like finally there's a voice in the public sphere, which is creating that sense of solidarity for those who felt betrayed by the political leaders of the past, who didn't like Obama, who didn't like Clinton? Is there a difference? You know, part of what I'm wondering and thinking about all these people throwing house parties and going on spring break and you know, we're going to, what is it, the woman on Twitter said, you know, like, this is America, and I'll do what I want. So I'm going to eat a burger in a restaurant. There seems to be a remarkably anti-statist attitude. They don't want to be led. They have a conception of what it means to be an American citizen, they have a conception of freedom. And they're looking for, I'm trying not to use the language of like negative liberty, but you know, they're looking for that you know, that sense of, that sense of American Self,
2: self-reliance well, to, to quote Emerson, right?
1: Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't want to do that to Emerson, but I mean, it is. No, a,
2: but is there central. is an element of Emersonian self-reliance. What was that book um, that uh, a couple of years ago was so good and everyone read, uh, I, I read and thought very highly of, the, uh, the Hawkshield book,
1: Strangers. Yeah, the
2: Hawkshield book, Strangers in Their Own Land. Um, the, she was going. I was going to say the Berkeley anthropologist who went down to, to <laughs> talk to people in Louisiana. Yeah. And I mean, there's a lot in that book, and and I and I thought it was an excellent book. But one of the things that really struck me was how so many of these people were like, "Look, I'd rather die and get sick than have people come in and tell me how to live my life." Yeah. And and there was just a lot of that in that book, and. And I think that that's something people need to take seriously. I mean, one of the things that I mentioned before was Giorgio Agamben, yeah. suggesting that it's a mistake to treat this virus as this disaster, because the virus is attacking us as living beings in our animality, in our what he calls bare life.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, and that that's not the worst thing in the world, and that, uh, you know, and so I I've put an Arentian twist on this which is that as you well know in in many much of her work including the human condition her main worry is what she calls the rise of animal laborans the turning man into a laboring animal and
3: for those who don't
2: know for those who don't know the, the key of that is that we most more and more of our human faculties are directed towards keeping us alive and reproducing and keeping the human race healthy and living rather than other activities which are more spiritual or more worldly. So, for example, you know, one of the things we're doing right now is not letting partners into hospitals for, for deliveries. So I think Cuomo changed that yesterday. What if parents are sick or people are sick, people aren't allowed to go visit them. Funerals are being in Italy not allowed, uh, or at least I don't, I don't know if they're fully not allowed or just very few people. And I, obviously, I understand the health public health experts who are making these rules. Yeah. But there is a loss of what does it mean to be a human person to have dignity to be remembered and to die without a funeral is very much like to die an animal, to die alone.
1: Well, one is reminded and of Antigone.
2: One is reminded of Antigone you know many things. And so, you know, one of the things that Arendt, I think forces us to ask is are we to some degree in our, you know, as Cuomo would say, the number one goal is to preserve as many lives as we can. Yeah. Right. Is that correct? Now, the problem I think with Trump is that the opposing value he sets to that is profit is, is the economy. And yeah. that's not where I would set the opposing value, but I understand it. I think there are opposing values to life, their dignity, their uh, love and friendship, uh, their community, there's having built a life. You know, I've been going and talking to a lot of people who own small businesses. You know, yeah. They've spent 20, some, 5 10, 20, sometimes 30 years building a business yeah. and they're very worried that their whole life's work may end. Yeah. This isn't about profit. It's not about profit. It's about dignity and it's about part of what a human life is. And it's- one of the things That I think the experts miss is that they, if you don't mind, I'm gonna I'm gonna cite someone that people don't like to cite anymore, named Friedrich Hayek. Um, I've been reading a lot of Hayek.
1: I mean, I disagree with everything, but I love him because he's brilliant. (laughs) I've
2: I've been reading a lot of Hayek this month because it turns out the only two 20th century intellectuals that I can find that in their work argue that intellectuals and experts are the real problem are Arendt and Hayek. Uh Um, And so I've been trying to write about Arendt and Hayek on this question. And one of the things that Hayek writes about that I find incredibly smart is what he calls the prejudice of scientism or the prejudice of experts. Mm -hmm. And what he says is every expert thinks they know how to solve a problem. So for example, the coronavirus experts think they know how to solve that problem. The housing experts think they know how to give everybody a house. Right. The med care, you know, Bernie's medical care people think they know how to give everyone medical care.
1: The bureaucracy um, of expertise.
2: Okay, but that's, that's not my point per se, although it's related. What yeah. it is, is the housing experts say we can do housing, we can fix that. The, the healthcare experts say we can do that. The problem is, they're right. If we were to give them control of the whole economy, the coronavirus experts could get rid of the coronavirus. But what would they destroy? the healthcare experts could get rid of, could give everyone a house. I mean, get everyone, you know, uh, health, good healthcare, but what would they destroy?
3: Yeah.
2: And the problem is, what he says is that experts, because they, are, they rightfully believe that they can actually solve the problems that they have set for themselves.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: They believe that anytime we don't solve those problems, we're not being objective and we're not being good scientists and we're not being experts. What they don't understand is that there are other problems and that solving these problems would lead to other problems. And so that's what he calls the bias of experts. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think that's a bias that we're deeply, deeply suffering from right now.
1: Yeah. You know, I'm not sure I think about it quite the same way that you do, you know, as you're, I want to, I want to kind of bring it to an example, actually a personal example that I've been thinking about this week, you know, so my, my family actually. So, my mother's parents were German immigrants who grew up in a ghetto in Cincinnati, and my father's parents fled after the potato famine. And he grew up on a chicken farm in Michigan. And, you know, both of my parents, most of my life, had very working middle class jobs. My dad was a manager for the UFCW at a Kroger, and my mom was a waitress. And when I was about 18, my mom, after about 20 years of waitressing, bought a small business. She bought a small store. And in 2008, 2009, when the economy collapsed, um, she couldn't maintain it. And she was forced to sell it to a family of immigrants from Iran who promised her that she could continue to manage and run it. And that lasted for about a year until a relative showed up and they gave her job managing the store to him. So as a result, being a woman in her mid late 50s having to find work without any kind of formal education, she found a job cleaning at the local hospital, which is where she's been working for about the past 10 years now. About a month ago, she had a bout of pancreatitis. And so she has been off of work and is supposed to go back next week. And she is, deciding whether or not to go back to work because if she goes back to work there's pretty much a 100% chance that she'll get coronavirus and get very sick because she has pre-existing conditions and what's complicating my mother's decision to do this is the fact that if she doesn't go back to work she's going to have to buy private health insurance which she can't afford to do so i am You know, so the first thought that I have is, you know what, let the health insurance experts make sure everyone has health insurance. Because if everybody has some form of good health insurance, which guarantees they can go to the doctor and not be financially crippled, then people like my mother, you know, who almost achieved the American dream, as we call it you know, and was thwarted by political and economic powers, you know, outside of her control, wouldn't have to make a decision about going back to work right now in this way. You know, and I I think part of, you know, to put on my, and, you know, to put on the, the what's the word, the devil's hat? It's not a devil's hat. Devil's
2: advocate. Yeah. Devil's advocate?
1: Yeah, to play devil's advocate. I think that some of the people who are critical of the liberal elite, who are critical of the experts who think that they can solve problems, understand those experts to be the very people that are manufacturing the problems that need to be solved instead of trying to develop policy that is human-oriented. And on the one hand, I'm really sympathetic to your you know, to your approach and to your understanding of thinking about why populism is um, surging around the globe right now. Um, And I think that it's absolutely right to think about this kind of anti-expertise, anti-professional thinker class. Um, But at the same time, it doesn't quite capture the whole picture for me Um, because I I think it speaks to a certain population of people who have an idea of what America is And I think, I don't think it speaks for all of them though. I think there's also, you know, I'm not sure what it is, perhaps a more democratic desire to counter the liberal elite.
2: Part of the issue is that I would put Bernie supporters in the same populist camp.
3: You and a lot of people.
2: I I think that the fact that the numbers are correct, Bernie has somewhere around 30 30 to 35% of the Democratic Party, which I think is about 15% of the American electorate. Yep. I could be wrong, but I think that's the numbers. Trump, let's say, has something like 90% of the Republican party or what's left of it, which is about 40% of the American electorate. Yeah. So Trump and Bernie together, if you have it, if this works, and again, I'm not a statistician, so let's bracket not, that yeah. out, have something along the lines of 55% of the American people yeah. who are what we would basically call anti-establishment or anti the system. Yeah. Yes. Um, I think that one of the problems that the liberal elite has, which whether we like it or not, we are part of the system right now, is that we are not taking seriously the anger and disenfranchisement of that 55% of people.
3: Absolutely. Um,
2: Yeah. And so, you know, I think that until we do, and until in some way the system changes to bring those people in, I think we're going to be in this kind of violently swinging populist mode for a while. And I have no idea when it changes because I don't think it changes when either Trump gets elected or when Bernie gets elected because I don't think either of them have the capacity to create a new center. You know, I think what's lacking right now is a candidate who can bring together some sort of the center, whatever that is anymore, with enough of the people who support Trump and enough of the people who support Bernie to rethink and remodel the system, if you will. And that's going to take someone who has a certain kind of earnest and rhetorical ability. And there was no one who really did that. I mean, I think the person who came closest to it in the election, in the Democratic primary, at least, was was Pete Buttigieg who tried as a millennial, you know, whatever. I don't think he obviously didn't succeed. And I don't think he was ready for it. But, you know, the point is, it's unclear to me who might do that. And I don't, and I don't know if it will be done in our lifetimes. I mean, this could last, this kind of seesawing populism could last a generation or two. I mean, there's no reason to think it won't. Yeah. Um, One of the reasons I told you before we started this conversation that unviolence to me is the most relevant of Rn's essays right now. And the reason we're going to start reading it this week in our reading group is because the whole premise of unviolence is that the rise of violence in the 60s and the glorification of violence came about because of a broadening sense amongst the population, especially the young population, that the system was corrupt and the system was not listening to them and that frustrated in their inability to be heard, they turned to violence.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, she thinks that was a mistake, although she thinks sometimes violence can work. She, didn't, she thinks it didn't in that case and that she says, in most cases, what violence will lead to is not a reform of the system or a revolution, but simply more violence. Yes. And I think in many ways, That swing started in the 60s, and we've seen it go to the Reagan Revolution in the 80s, you know, back and forth, and now we're back in Trump land. I I think uh, a lot of the analysis that RN does about violence and partiality and the fight between the elite and the people who are outside of the elite that she does in that essay on violence is very much at the heart of what's going on now in politics. And, yeah. And so uh, it's one of the reasons I think it's a deeply relevant essay to read and, and talk about today.
1: And it's, not, it's not, not a coincidence that time period, 1968, 69, the student protest movements, and then the Nixon administration and the Pentagon Papers, all of this coincides with the loss of trust and authority in government as well, I think, which brings Absolutely. to experts Um, Maybe we can move towards um, wrapping up. One of the things that I've been thinking about is you were talking about the possibility of a center and the need for some form of political unification is this conversation that I think a lot of people are having around solidarity. Um, Do you think that this global event, which is a new experience for all of us, is creating a space for the possibility for a new form of political solidarity?
2: I think there's two different ways I could imagine answering a question like that, which is a great question. One is is personal and one is political. And they can be related. But I do think that the the challenge to the system that this virus is offering and the Forced solitude, loneliness, isolation, we can pick which word we want to use, that it is forcing upon many people could, in certain circumstances, lead to people thinking in the way we started this conversation, Mm -hmm. encountering themselves and asking themselves the kinds of hard questions about what we believe, what's brought us to this state, why the system has failed, and maybe creating new thoughts and new, uh, ideas that could be articulated, whether it's in books or podcasts or actions, uh, or artworks and begin, uh, the process of making worldly new ideas. So that would be the, I guess, the hopeful idea that, um, with a lot of people, I hope a lot of smart people, Mm -hmm. having a lot of time to think and spend by themselves, maybe they'll start to ask themselves, why is it that 60% of the people like Trump? Or the Trump supporters will say, well, maybe we should listen to the experts a little more. And maybe some people will start breaking down some of their barriers and confront reality. I mean, Arendt always says that in a revolutionary situation when power and authority have basically been destroyed, power is lying in the streets waiting for it to be picked up.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, you know, I think on and off for the last 60 years, power has been lying in the streets since the 60s waiting to be picked up.
3: Yeah. And it
2: hasn't been picked up largely because those who would try to pick it up, the so-called revolutionaries as she called them in the 60s, and I would still call them that today, are not actually addressing the world; they're addressing theories. They're still thinking in theories. Neo-Marxism, Marxism, whatever you want to call it. Right. People have to get over that stuff. I'm sorry. I know I'm going to make a lot of enemies here, but we got to get over that it's
1: stuff. She doesn't want to get over it. I mean, aren't? Of course, like, she does. Aren't things with Marx? But she argues against him. I mean, it's not. It's not throwing it away. It's engaging. I'm not
2: saying throwing it away. I'm saying that you have to look at the world. And for whatever reasons, good or bad, the Marxist approach has not worked. Right? It it has n- whenever it's been tried, it hasn't worked. And people will say, Oh, well, that hasn't tried well, or you gotta try it better, or, you gotta do this. It hasn't worked. It's <laughs> led to it's led to disaster in the places that it's been tried.
1: It certainly um, has led to a lot of catastrophes in certain okay. places. What I call mart- catastrophe
2: or disaster. Either one. Sure. I'll go with either one. Yeah. The point is it's not going to, to be the, the answer. It's not going to be the idea that inspires a new solidarity. It's too politicized. It's too I see what it's you're Too saying. wrong. Yes. And, and so to keep trotting it out there as now is a new time for Marxism, as you know, Jacobin and others are trying to do, again, I think is just asking to be irrelevant. And so if there's going to be a new solidarity, it's going to come from a new idea. It's gonna come from new thoughts and new actions that speak to concerns like you raised with your mother about needing, you know, health care. And, and obviously the need for health care is one of the ideas that has been deeply meaningful to people. And yet thinking about how to do it in a way that's not technocratic Obamacare bureaucraties, but not maybe pure public option either or whatever. The point is, I don't know the answers. Yeah. Uh, but if they're going to come, it's going to come from new ideas that inspire us, not trying to retread old ideas.
1: I think that's right. And it it reminds me of one of my favorite Walter Benjamin essays on left wing melancholia, where he talks about Warna in, in a very, you know, Rentian spirit, although Aron was reading Benjamin the idea that we can't reuse old political slogans and ideas to address contemporary political problems, that we need new language, we need new concepts and ideas. But I think just to throw in a little, you know, one of the things that I think people who are clinging to the language of socialism right now perhaps have a staked belief in it and are ideologically committed to an idea of socialism. But I think also in my years on the left, in my youth, in college, you know, which I realized today, was it's gonna be, I'm about to hit the 20 year mark, which is a little crazy, um, is that sometimes you push that hard from a radical position just to push the conversation. It's not because you believe that, you know, overnight with the election of a candidate who calls himself socialist, we're going to have universal health care. But it's that this, you know, pushing the conversation so hard from a radical perspective can actually tilt the conversation in a progressive way. And I think, you know, that is something that we have been witnessing in the United States with Bernie's campaign or people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you know, agree with them, disagree with them. They have, you know, they have pushed the conversation. And I think sometimes that's, you know, what people are are trying to do.
2: Again, that's that's called power politics, which I'm perfectly happy to talk about. And all I'd say is
1: I have no lost, idea what power politics is.
2: <laughs> but I think they've lost. I mean, the very fact that I, you know, maybe you disagreed with the numbers I gave before, but. 40% of the people who don't like the system vote for Trump, and 15% of it vote for Bernie. Yes, they've changed the conversation on the left, but they haven't changed, I think, the conversation. In fact, if anything- Well, but our-
1: we've even seen Biden during this election campaign after his last slate of wins move a little bit more to a- you know, a progressive, you know, left position on certain issues, like, I believe, student loans, um, you know, closer to Elizabeth Warren's position when she was still in the campaign. So it can have an effect on candidates who are seen to be the institutional candidates as well and modifying yeah. positions to appeal to those people.
2: Yeah, but I, I don't think a lot of those positions are that far out of the institutional. I mean, I, I'll actually put it this way. I don't think any one of Bernie's positions are that far out of the institutional center of the Democratic Party. It's the totality of them that is outside of of the Democratic Party. I mean, even Medicare for all, I don't think is that far out of it's not in the it's not a majority, but it's not that far out of it. There's a lot of people who support it. Yeah. But none of the positions I think are non starters. And I think if a candidate were to pick one or two or three of them and say these are the three we're going to push for. I think they'd be very popular in the center of the Democratic Party. And I think that's what Biden's gonna end up doing. I mean, whether he can do it with any with the power and eloquence we need is a different story. But, you know, I hope so, because I think it's an important election. Just to go on the other aspect of solidarity that I was going to mention. Yes. Uh, you know, is something that Arendt talks about only a few times in her writing, but she does use the word solidarity in certain ways. And and what she says is. There are really two ways to bring people together today. One is through pity. And so you tell the rich and you tell the center and you tell the establishment that they should have pity for the poor and, and try and help them. And she thinks this is a, that there's two problems with this. One is that it's arrogant and it's dismissive of the poor. It actually doesn't listen to the poor so much as it tries to be paternalistic and tell them what they should want. And it's the approach of most liberals or socialists in her mind.
1: You're thinking Um, on revolution and the social question for people listening.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm talking about the end of the social question chapter on revolution. And then the second mode of solidarity, and she says the one that was more apparent in the United States than in France, was one in which you tried to imagine a solidarity based not on pity, but on everyone, including not only the poor, but also the rich and not only the weak, but the powerful.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: the black and the white and everyone. And and she says that's gonna be a much more humble, it's gonna create a solidarity that is a much more um decentralized, federalized in her view, mm-hmm. but one that allows trying to encompass everybody. And that's the idea I think of solidarity that she has in mind. She never really does much with it, I'll have to I, I admit. I mean, I'm I'm extrapolating a few pages out. Yeah. Um but she I think it's know. I think it's in line with a lot of things she writes elsewhere, although she never uses those specific terms, as far as I know, elsewhere.
1: Yeah. Well, maybe this is a good place to end. And, you know, thinking about solidarity and, you know, active citizen participation in government, you might want to plug our fall conference. Uh,
2: If (laughs) if we have a fall conference. I'm hoping hoping we have a conference. I'm hoping we have college
1: again in the fall. I mean,
2: I... (sighs) You know, I mean, who knows how long this is going to take. I mean, if, if we're not going to have a vaccine for another seven or eight months or more, I have no idea what happens in, in September, October. But assuming we're back to some sort of uh, some semblance of a, of a public, active, outside, non-socially distancing life.
3: <laughs> um,
2: every October, the Hannah Arendt Center has a, a, a major international conference at Bard College. And uh, it's on a theme this year. The theme is um, revitalizing democracy on sortition and citizen juries, and it's a, it's an idea that that goes back to the Greeks. Most of the Athenian uh, officials that were elected to run their not that were chosen to run their government were not elected, but were chosen by lottery. Most democracies, all the all the middle aged democracies in Italy and others, used lottery and not uh, election. And Aristotle, Montesquieu, Rousseau, and all the theorists who talked about it said that in aristocracies you use elections to pick your leaders and in democracies you use lottery. We're not gonna go back to picking all of our representatives by lottery, I'm not clueless. But to me, the most interesting part of the activist left is one that's geared around creating citizen juries and citizen assemblies where you bring people together by lottery chosen from all around society to talk about major issues, be it the environment or abortion or gay marriage or whatever it is, and you let them meet together for a few days or three days a week or whatever over a couple months, and they can bring in experts, they can bring in people to inform them, they deliberate, they talk to each other, and they come up with ideas on how to solve or approach these problems. And these citizen assemblies and citizen juries have been incredibly successful where they've been tried. And they've been tried in the United States on private levels, but around the world now in Canada, Ireland, Germany, and France, actually being convened by the governments of these countries in order to uh, help break through with new ideas, the kind of new ideas that I was talking about. That come through, not through one side or the other winning, but bringing people together and trying to find some sort of a meaningful consensus of some sort. And so we're going to be bringing some of the leading thinkers around these citizen juries from all over the world together in October at the RN Center at Bard to talk about how to revive democracy in in our time. So uh, we'd love to see you there
1: something we desperately need right now. All right. Thank you, Roger, for taking the time to make this recording with me. And I look forward to seeing you in person when we
2: Yes, not have to I so hope so. <laughs>
0: thank you very
2: much, Sam.
1: Distance.
2: Enjoy your solitude.
0: Oh, I will. <laughs> you too. <laughs> Bye. All right. We hope you have enjoyed this conversation with Professor Roger Berkowitz, If you enjoyed listening to this edition of the Amor Mundi podcast, please visit us online at hac.bard.edu and click subscribe to find podcasts, original writing, videos, and more, all delivered twice a week to your inbox. It's bold and provocative thinking in the spirit of Hannah Arendt, and it's free. To learn how to become a member of the Hannah Arendt Center and support our work, just click on Join HAC.